souls out there quaking in fear and anticipation and excitement for the Brighton Fringe 2019. And they are just the bar staff. Boom. Did um, I did a, I did a joker. You, you did a topper, I as did, it's known in the trade. Is it what's a topper? No, actually, it's not. That's not a topper. Um, what did I do? So, well, <laughs> you I, used to do stand up. I used to do stand up, and then I worked out there were quite enough diffident middle class white male stand ups in the profession. For one, I wouldn't say you were middle class, but um, uh, yeah. yeah. What, what, what am I? You're an up and comer. I'm not going to Google that. No, don't don't Google that. So you've downloaded the Cast Iron Theatre podcast if you're listening to this. Yes, you have. Yeah. And we are... We're going to have a bit of a segue of our conversations at the moment. Mm. Um, we're going to be speaking about The Fringe, but also in recent podcasts and in current podcasts and in up-and-coming... Oh, yeah, I see, that is a phrase. Mm. Uh, podcasts, <laughs> we are going to be talking about... Uh, creating uh, work uh, in Brighton. Uh, we're a fringe theatre that deals in ex- exclusively um, new writing. Yeah. And whether that be the work of our own or inviting uh, playwrights, uh, directors to work with us mm-hmm. on new work. And so that's um, obviously not particularly a niche subject, new writing, um, but... Because we aren't a company that deals in revivals or producing existing work, mm. that that's our focus is uh, new writing. Yeah, that's right. That's who we are. Uh, and yeah, how how do you find? Because you're currently are doing a bit of new writing on your of your own. Yes. Although we should acknowledge that's that's prose rather than um, a stage, mm-hmm. um, and you're on. The draft number, whatever, of that. Yeah, I think draft number three, but... Yeah, draft number three. I'm sort of an edit edit of two, working towards draft number three. Yeah. And how are you, how are you finding it? I am finding it... I've, I'm just near the end of that, that sort of scribbling on the, the printout itself. And I'm finding it um, fun... A little bit scary because there's, I thought that the plot was down and set and I'm now going, ah, oh, I could make it even more exciting and it's the danger of trusting yourself as to whether that's actually a good idea or if you're just procrastinating even more. So, yeah, it's it's going really well. I think the plot is laid down now. I think that what I've done recently is because it's it's one book of a few that I hope to write in the same world, in the same narrative. Um, And I hope uh, I've recently sat down and uh, worked out exactly what's going to happen in the next books rather than have that as sort of nebulous ideas. Um, And the next few books really so um now i'm going back through the the first draft uh now i'm going back through the the draft that i've got of the first book and putting in more information because i know where the characters are going now so that's been quite helpful as a writer are you instinctively at heart a plotter a planner or a pantser yeah i've heard this phrase recently which might need unpacking. So the planner is planner. That doesn't need unpacking. Um, and the pantser is 
just right, 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 right. No plan, no nothing. Essentially, if yeah. you want to get the thumbnail uh, description of that, yes. Yeah. I am a pantser, which I hate as a word. Uh, but, yeah, I don't plan. However, what I do do is I listen to... Um, I put playlists together of music um, which have inspired me to have certain visuals in my head of of the story and I can kind of replay the, the whole story across an ever-increasing playlist and what I do is just replay that over and over again to remind myself visually of the, the beats, yeah. the visuals in uh, the... What's the word for that? I suppose it is the sort of the imagination or the visuals or the vision of it which sounds quite i don't know a bit too posh i don't know but yeah the vi- the vision of it in my head that that i see um that's based on music so whilst i don't plan pen and paper i definitely have a direction and i fix things through music um so yeah, when I when I did the first draft, it was very much knowing what I wanted to be at the beginning, knowing what I wanted to be at the end, working out the middle, and then going back over it in the in at the end of the first draft and fixing plot and making sure that that adhered to a certain story structure. I'm very big into structure as well, which is odd, but I I find that even though I don't necessarily plan, I think I have a good idea of what story should be. In inverted commas, because of course it could be anything and it should be anything, but I actually follow, I think we've talked about before, I follow the sort of John Truby organic storytelling method. So it's all about choices and um, organic, seemingly organic plot, where actually everything is funneling down towards a very distinct binary choice at the end. So, yeah. yeah. So I kind of, yeah, pants to start, plan afterwards, which is a odd way to go around it, possibly. What about you? Do you plan or you pants? Uh, okay. I, I, <laughs> you pants? Is that, I'm not sure yeah. I'm using the word correctly. Again, like you, I'm, or but somewhat different, I'm a pants and a plan at the same time. I, particularly in short stories, I'll often have that germ of an idea or a single image or a, an idea that I want to discuss and I'll just start writing and get towards that and find where that takes me and it's a bit like excavation it's a bit like sort of them um, particularly on the second or third draft um taking all those words away so the, the actual story is left mm. um which you don't always know and then once you get to the second or third draft the planning can come into play um with a longer work um i might know the opening sequences i will know a couple of the um the interesting moments throughout um and i might have a vague idea of where i'm liking that to culminate in and then i can sort of write those and then i'll start writing the bridging acts and then it becomes a bit more coherent about what's happening um what what happens then is that that particular set piece that I need to happen to introduce that problem, I will find it's, it's too late in, in the story and actually I have the story spinning wheels because I want it to be a great finale moment and 
it might take me half a draft to work out, oh, hang on, I'm just spinning wheels in mm. this, I'm just um, delaying a plot point. And if you are delaying a plot point, points just for that big reveal, then it's arguable either you, you find more actual plot to get there, or you bring that plot point forward. Um, story never essentially has to run out. Uh, this is something that we've unpicked a lot in improv classes that... And it happens with improvisers as well, um, of any um, level of experience, in that the story will be, to put a harsh tone on it, going nowhere. And when you're debriefing that afterwards, they say, oh, yeah, I was going to um, speak about the fact that those two characters were related, but I was getting there. Um, but I didn't want to do it too soon, otherwise the story would be over. Mm. Uh, but and particularly with improvisation, the story can never be over. You yeah. can you can kill off the characters, and then it can be about the aftermath of the response to those characters. Mm. And yeah, so I feel that it becomes um, for me doing those two things at the same time. There's the the joy of, and I guess it depends also on what the product is. If there's something quite dense and set in. 1437 then and you want to do um a story that's about a drag car race it, it it's going to benefit you to do a bit of research to realize that drag car racing in 1437 isn't really a thing no it's a pity to sort of like pants all that and then go oh, that doesn't work yeah yeah that's a the fear isn't it yeah. that you spend a lot of time spinning your wheels um boom another joke Drag car. Oh, yeah, yeah. Spinning your wheels. I guess that also, the thing that I'm discovering in my draft at the moment of the thing that I'm working on is demanding of myself that every single thing happens for a reason. Uh, quite often when you're writing, particularly if you're writing in genre, um, by which I mean loosely anything that comes under the, the umbrella of fantasy or sci-fi, anything like that, horror, um, you do realize you you're aware very early on you want that thing to happen and you want that event to occur you want that argument to arrive and it it becomes very transparent uh, even in produced films and uh, finished novels published novels that that thing only happens because the god of that series i.e. the author needed it to happen mm. and there's no, no actual logic for it to happen and. A good enough, and I don't use this phrase negatively, a good enough hack writer will be able to have enough sleight of hand that you don't notice that the thing isn't happening for any particularly good reason because the, the, the characters are charismatic enough, the writing is engaged enough that you don't happen to notice it. But on the second view or the, the fourth reading, you might happen to go, oh, there was, why did they suddenly turn up in, in that location? There was mm. no reason for that. Yeah, yeah. So this episode we're mostly talking about the process of writing i yeah. suppose we, uh, we mentioned that we might be speaking about the environment as well uh yes yeah so uh in terms of the process i'm really interested in the inside of other people's heads not in a sort of hannibal-esque way yeah but in terms of like we're all different so how do you how do we all see stories like i see it in a film trailer with the music which is why the music helps because beats of the 
the music helped me to realise when a turn in a plot will happen, yeah. when a moment will happen. I come from like the film background, so it's all very visual to me, and I'm really enjoying that kind of style of writing that is kind of quite filmic anyway. Um, so, yeah, I'm really, really visual, and there's music massively plays, plays part in the way that I write, but I don't hear any dialogue, because, of course, in my head, it's a trailer. Yeah. Um, which I then unpick and every scene becomes its own little trailer, which is helpful as well because they have to have beats in them. Yeah. Know. But I don't hear the I don't hear the the dialogue. I don't necessarily see very much of the characters themselves. It's just all action, 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 yeah. or moments. You know, what do you when you are writing in your head, which I suppose is always like the first draft, isn't it? When yeah. you're doing that first thought of a story or when you're trying to fix a story, how do you how do you see it in your head? Is it words? Is it pictures? Is it do it can you hear them talking? I'm often also do the film trailer thing, I think many writers do, they they see. Not because they necessarily have this um dream that it will eventually become a film. No. That that's the language that we're speaking now, um, mm. is film trailer and music, um, beats and moments. Um, I do think of the book as a physical thing, uh, even though I do read stories on Kindle, I still visualise a book as a, as a paper and ink thing, and, and I, dialogue is important, uh, particularly also as a lot of my background is stage writing, which is stripped down to mm. dialogue. Um and the weight behind those words spoken, particularly if you know, as a reader, if you know more than the person speaking does, or indeed know less than the person speaking does. So you you, you become very aware that words spoken don't have to signify the things that the speaker intends. Yeah, I think I'm failing at that at the moment. I think um, it's, you know, that, that's, you know, dialogue being spoken as a straightforward plot device is not in of itself a, a bad thing. But th- there are certain phrases that we use in everyday life when we're, particularly if we're teaching in workshops or if we discuss writing or acting, that become, for me, that become wallpaper. Um, that they are very helpful phrases, but we've heard them so often that they just become meaningless to us until we re-educate ourselves what they mean and one such phrase is um, page turner Mm. Uh, that whole idea that a good book makes you want to turn the next page and I think it benefits us to remind ourselves that's what a book is Um, a film or TV series uh, arguably does a lot of that heavy lifting for you in terms of edit and light and sound and music and you can be um, a passive participant in consuming that story. Whereas if you're reading a story, if you're reading prose, there's a bit more demand of you to um, actively participate in turning the page. And we were speaking about this uh, a couple of nights back um, in relation to theatre and in relation to um, children's theatre. And we're talking about pantomime and children's plays. And it surprised me that quite often children's pantomimes at one would end on, 
oh, that's an exciting thing that's just happened. Well, we're going to take a few moments off now. Uh, we'll see you after the break. Get some ice cream and we'll see you in 50 minutes. Mm. Bye-bye, kids. I don't understand that process. I, I spoke about um, a version of The Gingerbread Man written uh, by David Wood, who I think is one of the um, premier playwrights for children's theatre. I think he did a lot of work with the Unicorn back in the day. And The Gingerbread Man is all about the gingerbread man who's been made on a kitchen uh, shelf and we meet uh, the other characters, like the uh, milk jug, and we meet the uh, salt and the pepper pots, etc. And these are all very engaging characters that the kids very quickly get to love. And we've been told that there is... Um, Possibly, I think, some poison on the top shelf or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the plot of the end of that one involves the gingerbread man coming too close to the pot of poison. And I have a very clear memory of seeing a production of that when the kids were standing up in their seats, uh, warning the gingerbread man not to go near the poison. And then lights down, end of that one. And you know those kids are going to come straight back. Yeah. And I think that a novel, anything with chapters, anything with more than two pages, why wouldn't you have something at the end of each chapter to ensure that your reader doesn't put the book down and find something else? Yeah. Um, And why they're deciding to stay up past one o'clock in the morning reading your book. Um, I have a very clear memory of the first time I read um, a Roald Dahl story called Galloping Foxley. And in my telling you of what that story is, it's a relatively flimsy plot in that a train passenger, come, uh, who's an English businessman with all that in, entails, suit, bowler mm. hat, uh, umbrella, on the London train, everyone reading their financial newspapers, all being very British, a very male um, carriage, curt hellos, are not talking. And the course of this short story... Um, a man becomes convinced that he's face-to-face with his tormentor, his bully from public school when Uh. they were young. And the bulk of the story is the memories of how, what a dreadful dreadful person this man, boy, was. And at the end of the um, story, uh, the protagonist in the story, the narrator, introduces himself, which immediately is a social faux faux pas. Every other man in the carriage looks up to go, why are you talking to this? Mm. stranger and the stranger looks up and introduces himself with the wrong name Uh. Uh, so it could be mistaken identity it could be um, a lie whatever the way that I originally saw that short story printed uh, was that the stranger introduces himself in a line of print that was at the very bottom of the page so I turned over the page because obviously the story wasn't over yet. Mm. But it was. The next story uh. was printed there. And I indeed did that thing of flicking back and forth between the pages and even trying to crease the page to see if what uh, page was stuck together. And that threw me f- for a while. I later saw that same story published in a different edition where the font was slightly different and the end of that story came up halfway through the page. So there's clearly lots of white space so even as you turn the page before the end of the story, you know the story's coming to an end. Yeah. And I think that has a real 
impact on how you consume a story about if you, if you the reader know how it's constructed if you can see the ending coming into view it's why um reading a story or a novel on a kindle as opposed to a print book can be a different experience because you're not always going to know genuinely how many pages are left when you're reading a kindle even though it might tell you 28 minutes are left to read your story um because it does your reading speeds mm you're not necessarily going to know that the story ends now. Mm. Similarly, if you're watching a play or a film, and you're, if you're watching a play, you roughly have an idea of how the evening works out, so you are aware that, oh, they can't possibly resolve anything that they're setting up now, we must be getting to the interval soon. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. So you neatly sidestep talking about yourself too much. What, what's in your head? When you write, do you, because oh. you do, you, you did mention it a bit, mm. I'm being unkind really, but you you did mention it a bit, but what do you, do you visually see stuff and do you hear them talking in your head, Andrew? I, there, no, do I, you hear them talking, Andrew, a lot? I do, and I think that's, um, one has to be really harsh with oneself. And I read, again, I'm going to sidestep slightly, uh, I read stuff where it's quite clear that the author knows exactly what's going on, but they forgot to report back to us. Yeah. And it's similar, you know, if you if you ever work or you have kids of your own and there are kids in the playground or in the back garden and they're playing at dragons or kitchens, mm. whatever the kids are doing these days. Dragon or kitchen. Um, and... <laughs> They'll be somewhat in a huddle because their their universe is is contained within their own minds and their own hands. Yeah, and it's very clear to them what they're doing, but it's not clear to anybody who happens to be observing them. Mm. And I'm not sure that we actually change that much as adult storytellers unless we tell ourselves what to do. So if I'm describing, if I know that, that I've got a scene set on a burning um, clipper boat of the 17th century, um, I need to be really... um, I need to consider very carefully how many or how, how few words I'm going to be using if I need to understand that the mic protagonists cannot, cannot escape the hull because um, some woods, wood has collapsed and they're only exit. Mm. I need to tell you that. And sometimes it's very easy for writers of any ilk to sort of forget details and nuance in the way they are telling that story. It can go the other way if you're world building. Um, you can be spending far too much time and effort describing to the reader a world that the characters within that world already know very well. Mm. And that's where, you know, clunky exposition comes from, um, that characters end up telling each other, oh, since we've been brothers for all our lives, that sort of thing. So what do you see? Do you talk to yourself in, like... Because I used to do... I, I often still do, actually. Um, if I'm alone in the house, I'll, I'll have conversations with the character, in the character's voice and, 
you know, uh, talk, that I think that's the only way that I can really get dialogue yeah. done, that, that I need to inhabit that, so act it out, I suppose. But do you, are you aware that you physically the the room that they're in and and you're looking around the room and what what you know you've got to describe that and that and that and then you can you hear them say stuff or what yeah um there's a fairly short cut between me visualizing or seeing or smelling or hearing it and me getting those descriptions down on paper i think it's slightly different although i couldn't necessarily identify how depending on what medium i'm writing for yeah play or novel or short story um are you in you're you're inside the character's head though looking through their eyes yeah which is a neat trick if you are writing from multiple viewpoints as well that's going to be my next question um and it's dependent dependent on whether or not your story actually has a sole protagonist and supporting characters or if your story has two protagonists and there are writers who can do it very um, cleanly and glibly, even if their story is about one protagonist, they can, in a way that seems effortless, dip into the mindset of the person they're talking to for just half a line and then dip back, and it doesn't feel like it's a clunky cut. See, I'm... Because this is... What I'm writing at the moment is entirely in the person's head at all times. It's all from... Well, the point of view does change, will change in the next edit, but there is no um, omnipotent, omnipresent narrator. There is no narrator. No. So everything is felt... And lived through whichever whichever character I'm inhabiting at that moment as the writer. So what I know, they know. What yeah. you know, what they know, I know as a as a reader, I suppose. Yeah. You know that that you're you're holding back some information, and then you're using another character to see something from a different point of view yeah. or a misunderstanding. You only gather that as a reader through inhabiting the different characters' heads, um, which works amazingly well for romance, which is not what I'm writing, but a a part of what I'm writing. Yeah. You know, because then you can, as the reader, be going, no, God, if you just sorted out that one thing. Yeah. Um, Which I love that kind of thing. But, yeah, there's no narrator, which I'm weirdly thinking of um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy being, there's a narrator running through that, and you're in the head of different characters as well, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, Hitchhiker's, the novel, has a, has a narrator, and that narrator is Douglas Adams. It's his voice that really goes through that, which allows him, because the novel comes from his original radio script, for the radio play, mm. um, but it does allow him a bit of a, a distance on the characters, so they are all independently drawn characters, they're all distinct, but, or and, there is a sense of Adams commenting on mm. them, you know, and, and allowing us to see their world. The book that you're writing at the moment, the novella, is that um, 
does that have a narrator running through it, or are you always in your protagonist or whoever's your character's mind? No, it's a bit more. There is a, a like a, the narrator, which is me, um, setting those characters in their various conflicts, mm-hmm. etc. But as that narrator, I allow myself to get a bit closer into their heads and allow uh, us, the reader, to um, share in what their fears and concerns are. Mm. There are arguably two protagonists in that novella, which throws up an interesting challenge in that neither one of them are necessarily the primary protagonist. Um, I might, depending on where the weight of that scene or that chapter lies, I might allow us to see the concerns of one character. I also may see the concerns of one character via how they present to the other character. I like that, yeah. So I would say, as as a Truby fan, that you can only ever have one protagonist, though. Yeah, um, but if you're doing... And there's a long and proud uh, tradition of... um, duo movies mm. um, and arguably you know, there might be one that's our entry level into that mm-hmm. thing um, I think Star Wars is quite a good example in that it's argued that Luke is our entry level into that. Yeah I'm probably misrepresenting him somewhat because I think he's more because otherwise it's an ensemble piece or you might have a duo like a duet um, but if you do that every single major character has to have a um, resolving a story that resolves um, and then that all has to tie into a greater scheme of a value statement that you're making about the world. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly a thing that I think is useful for your second, third, certainly my second, third, fifth, mm. ninth, tenth draft is that, and against one of those things that sounds something like a truism that if you've heard enough about writing, you you almost dismiss it because you already know it but I think it really bears to, up to scrutiny everything in your story has to happen for a reason mm. uh, the bad guy is not a bad guy just because No, there has to be a logic to that uh, they may never share that logic with us yeah. but you genuinely they're, have to know yeah they're not the bad guy of their own story there has no. to be and, um, and I think that's what um, and I'm not going to give any spoilers at all for this, but that I think that's what Avengers is doing really well and did do really well with Infinity War, Infinity Wars, uh, with Thanos. Yes, um, because he's he's his logic, as twisted as it is, is actually fairly sound. Yeah, no, there's, there's a harsh logic to that. Mm. There's, yeah, yeah. So we talked a bit. I'm um, eating a biscuit, which is very unprofessional, whilst um, recording a podcast. But if we... you um, um, own a biscuit company and you want to sponsor <laughs> the podcast, uh, yeah. we are seeking um, sponsors. We're seeking biscuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're based in Brighton. I'm not necessarily aware that Brighton has a, a proud biscuit history. I, I don't think there's any biscuits that have been named after Brighton. Areas. There is confectionery though, isn't there? There is. Well, there's literally a Brighton Rock. Eh? Hey, yeah, I fed you that one. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm gonna, she said diving for another biscuit. Um, 
well, we've talked about uh, what we're writing at the moment. We've we've delved in a little bit of our process of writing, how we come up with ideas. Um, so before, because we were talking last week about um, Twitter and the writing community hashtag um, and how supportive I found that recently you have as well, I think. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of talk on there at the moment about where do you write? Like, show your, show your study, show your working. Yeah. So show your study, uh, show your room, your kitchen, like, you know, not in a stalkery way, but in a show your workspace. That's yeah. what I want to say. Yeah. Showing your workspace. Where is it that you write? How do you write? Pen and paper, laptop. Do you write in a coffee shop? Do you write in your living room? And I suppose so where and we've spoken about this before, I think, yeah. on the podcast, but where is it that you do most of your writing? Your physical when you're sitting down to write? I I mean that was part of our questions for so long of, you know, when you're creative, where is there a coffee shop that you go to? Yeah. All of those. That's that was part of our three questions and, and it is when we speak to guests it is, yeah. on the show. But yeah, where sorry, where do you do your writing? I don't have a, a stock answer to that because it is quite varied. I we're lucky enough uh, where we are to have a room that we, we can call a study um, mm. because it it's a study and it has a, a desk and um, space you know to um, put up the laptop and whatever. So that can be really useful. I I often times will sort of sit in the uh, our front room and uh, write there, but I. There's a desk there that you can do that at. Yeah, there is. and But also, I'll, I'll, I'll take the work out and write in a coffee shop. I quite... I will treat the um, a coffee shop as my office space. There's something quite useful about being able to get out of the, um, the home environment mm. uh, where there may be many distractions, like all the other books that I haven't read <laughs> um, or any bits of um, the danger of any of our streaming services to distract you, uh, to to distract one. And so getting out of the house and um, writing in a coffee shop can be useful. I haven't had a chance to do that so much this year so far. It's been quite a busy year so far, so I've not really had an opportunity to do that so much. But traditionally I have spent um, so much time in coffee shops that... um, Google Street Maps actually has an image of me mm-hmm. in it because they, you may not know this, um, Google Street Maps go into businesses and you can you can look inside the business that you uh, that you're passing, <laughs> and um, I'm yes I'm I'm on Google Street Maps for for a coffee shop. No, you have to give them a shout out now. Well, Where's that? This is um, Mojo Club Mojo. Um, mm-hmm. Mojo Coffee, yeah, which there are two premises of that um, in Brighton. And, uh, yeah, w- uh, I have um, a terrifying number of loyalty cards <laughs> yet to be redeemed uh, with those guys uh, for uh, Mojo Coffee Shop. And, yeah, so I also will either be working on the laptop or, like you, I will quite quickly get to a printed out copy of that that mm. then I can graffiti and scribble all over as I 
ask myself questions about why is that character doing that thing i don't know um, how helpful that's being to me i mean really? i'm I'm going through the graffitiing stage i'm not sure i can bear to go page by page back through the 300 pages i find it quite useful mm-hmm. it, 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 it's admittedly demanding but you if you were stopping yourself and you're reading every line you're demanding mm-hmm. every line and going why is that happening um, then it's very easy. It, you're becoming your first editor, yeah. Uh, because then it's very easy to discover that that question that you asked on page thirty actually hasn't been resolved on page two hundred forty-six. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about those those kids who are playing and they can see the world. You know that character A is doing that because they uh, are angry about character F who never spoke to them in college. Mm. And then, because you know that, and if you're scan reading it and you're not really demanding of it of yourself and graffitiing the notes quite aggressively with yourself, mm. it may not occur to you to notice that you haven't actually written that down. Because yeah. it's, it's clear and obvious to you. And it might, just, it might need just a, a, a one throwaway line uh, that just snags at the reader's mind to let them know that that's your intention. But I, I mean, I've, I've read very good published books where an odd typo of a name, the wrong name has been used at one point, mm. or that, yeah, that, that there's been a curious edit, or what looks like a curious edit, but it just it's quite clear that and it's not about subtle writing or me necessarily being too dense to pick up on the uh, subplot but you know things have been missed out because the author has assumed stuff yeah yeah i was thinking as well whether there's needs to be an edit that i go through which is the simile and metaphor edit Mm. um because apparently i do not like them nor use them at all and they they're really great you know not Endless simile, not yeah, endless be, metaphor. You don't want um, as many um, similes as... I can't be bothered. <laughs> as an octopus has arms. Eight. No, that would be fine. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I definitely need to go back once I'm very, very, very happy with the plot and the different po- points of view and what is known and what isn't known and all of these things, that there will still be another edit on top that is the the grand polish where I talk about the ways people move differently, I possibly add a bit more about, because I'm writing new adult or young adult, depending on how you you grade that, new adult being any uh, protagonist over 18 but under 30. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, what I'm writing. If Well, I know that's what I'm writing, but I think that's the genre that it goes into, or the, the age category. But I know that I'm writing very few uh comments about how people move and their uh what what they're wearing not in a shallow way but just in a very descriptive way you know of their their and and I'm not using similes as much as I probably should I think people moving the way they breathe the way they strike a match mm. It can be really quite beautiful. Uh, they're good for world building, but they're also good for um, signifiers. They they feel mm. like that they're just um, salt to the scene, 
um, but actually they can be really helpful. And it means also that you're setting up concepts that then when you do a reveal later on, don't feel like a cheat that mm. the reader isn't going, hang on, that came out of nowhere yeah. because you've set it up in a very subtle way. One of the cutest examples I can think of right now is um, almost inevitably in one of the um, Harry Potter books when Harry first reveals to um, Professor Lupin that he has reason to believe that um, an antagonistic Wormtail is still alive because he's seen the um, the figures on the map and he's interested in the other names on the map. And Lupin, who is um, packing up his stuff to get out of the classroom at the time, lets his fingers slip on the um, briefcase that he's packing. Yeah. And it's one line, it's thrown away, and Rowling does a good a good enough job of camouflaging the fact that Lupin has just lost his grip on the uh, suitcase for a moment. And it's never referred to again, obviously, mm. but it just sits uncomfortably in your head for a while, even if you haven't worked the back plot of that. Yeah. But then it becomes important later because you work out that... Although the scene, and it's a good game with that when you are aware of if you are restricted to telling the story through one protagonist, mm. um, how much work you have to do with the other characters who are not your protagonist. Because in that particular scene, Harry is not the important person in that scene. Yeah. It's, that's all about Lupin's world and his reaction. But yeah, there's enough lampshading or indeed la- lack of lampshading mm. that you don't particularly notice that. And there's also that idea of revealing through if you're if you, you are in the head of one protagonist, that how much you reveal to your reader and how quickly you reveal things to your reader, even even through other people, without making your protagonist the most dense person in the world for not picking up on the cues. That's yeah. a real tricky balance as well. And equ- something that I need to go through. And equally, why, which is something that I'm having to edit out and work in my current draft, is... If your characters having to discover things, even regardless of their dense or intelligent, why do the other characters who know the information not just say it? Yeah. That um, because you know you as the author need to conceal that information from the reader. Um, so why is it immediately revealed? And obviously the reason, the, the way you do that is to just push up a couple more obstacles or make sure that that's not a, pl- a topic of conversation. There's a very elegant moment of that. I hope you use lots of pop culture references today. There's a very elegant moment in of that in Scream 2 mm. where the protagonist is um, trapped in a car and the killer, uh, the ghost face killer, um, manages to get into the driver's seat of the car. They're driving along and then the car crashes and the ghost face figure appears to be unconscious. And the story, the film was contrived that Nave Campbell's character has to climb over the killer. Mm, yeah, who, and again, because it's a mask, you have no idea if he's playing possum or not, that uh, there could sort of be an attack. So you as the, read, as the viewer, the consumer of the story, are already tense. Yeah. But those films depend, the, the film collapses as soon as you know who the killer is. Yeah. So logistically, if she's in that position, even if she's risking her life, if the killer appears to be unconscious, it makes absolute sense that she would attempt to remove the mask. Yeah. That's absolute, and you can't cheat on that. 
and the film plays with this very well because she's edging in towards the mask but they're in the car and at the last moment her elbow hits the um, car horn we get a good jump scare for the yeah. audience and then that propels her to go out logistically it doesn't quite hold up to scrutiny but it makes her jump enough to it, just get, to get out, out. Yeah. and that's a good example of having your cake and eating it yeah. you sort of go to the point of you know particularly paying attention to those viewers who go why wouldn't you pull off the mask yeah. she actually intends to do that Cheap jump scare makes everyone um, joyfully have that horror movie scare of jumping. I mean, as you say, just gets her out of the car. And it, essentially the plot doesn't develop at all in that point. Yeah. But it, and that's exactly the point, because that's what we're discussing. There's a reason why the plot yeah. doesn't develop at that point, and it actually earns the delay. Yeah. So we've talked this week about how we write. Yeah. We've talked about uh, where, we, where we write. Yeah. I haven't said where I write. No, where is that? Uh, I do write at home. I I write whilst... So in my head, I write whilst walking. I headphones in walking. So I do a lot of writing. Brackets in that then. Um, how often do you come up with a... I, I'm almost loading the question up because I somewhat know the answer because I think a lot of writers are the same. Mm. How often do you come and solve a plot point when you are actually away from the manuscript and you're not actually doing much to do the manuscript. Yeah, well. definitely. A lot of the time. Um, I think, yeah, I think everyone needs that distance away from it. And I think for me it's just, um, yeah, walking and getting out of the house to do that to or moving around the house with the music playing uh, to play it through in my head. But I definitely get more done if I'm walking at a pace, so if I'm walking briskly, uh but that's just, so that's why I do that the really really creative stuff where it's all free and you can delete it any second because yeah. you can go oh that doesn't work let me reimagine it, um, but where I do the physical writing it needs it needs to not be a cafe um, because I find that too distracting so I I do a lot of my my actual writing is in the study, um, and yeah I I. I did write my first first ever novel attempt that is only at draft one stage that I did that in longhand, which I really enjoyed because then I, su- I suppose it is in draft two because I typed it up and changed yeah. things. Um, but this one I've I've done completely through uh, just uh, typing. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I type very quickly, so that's that's handy. Yes. Yeah. I uh, yeah get to be so I can I kind of do a lot of solving of problems whilst I type as well. I wouldn't be able to solve problems as much if I was longhand writing, um, but I can type quicker than I can think if that makes sense. So it's a bit like playing the piano. That's the only equation that I can equation equation e- equation yeah yeah. That's the only way that I can equate that is uh, that I can feel the next sentence i find coming. it the almost the opposite i quite enjoy when i have the opportunity um of writing in longhand because mm. it demands of you to write um slower you you know your thoughts have to wait for you to catch up which means that once you've got those words down on paper they're probably going to be better earned for me yeah uh because you are not necessarily you're treating them with more care but it takes you long to get to them yeah whereas i wonder if sometimes if i'm um, typing too fast that um 
Yeah, I'm doing that thumbnail kids playing sort of thing of going. Oh, and there was a there was a there was a man with an angry face. Let's see. Oh, but that's exactly what my entire first draft yeah. was, and I'm fine with that. I think I needed to get the story out and I needed to get the plot out and do a lot of. They looked. She looked. He went over there. They sat down for a bit and then he talked at her and and then they ran for a bit and then there was some jumping and and then there was a vampire. You know, like it's it's very like that. It's but like then, a, a two-year-old primer. Yeah. The, the the bad man jumped away from the angry vampire. And there was big jumping with legs, and then big jumping with a sword, and yeah, it's a lot of that. And then the second draft was very much trying to make that into you know better writing. Um, what, but yeah. What are you reading at the moment? I am reading lots of uh, vampire books. No. I'm reading. Various. Uh, I I need to read a couple of books that someone that someone gave me as well. Um, what was the book that our friend gave us by Donna Tart? The Secret History. Yeah, I want to read that yeah. next. And I'm also reading some uh, non-fiction as well. Yeah. So I'm reading Dan Pfeiffer's book. Um, yes, we still can. Yeah. I also listen to a lot of podcasts that helps me come up with ideas for yeah. various new projects, shiny new things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, a lot of uh, pop culture sort of vampire werewolf books because that's my uh, that's my genre. Yeah. Um, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, about nine different things at once. Um, I am working my way through um, The Outsider, uh, one of Stephen King's most recent books, and yeah. getting to the last um, birth of that. I also need to pick back up the uh, power which i started with the, um, the end of last year and um again near the finale of that i need to finish mm. that um zadie smith's um swing time which is uh, i always admire um zadie smith for her elegant turn of phrase and again the way that she can present the entire world by talking about the thing next to the world yeah and that's really fascinating uh to me in in the sense that there's a line from um, N.W., which is just so lovely. It's something, and I'm going to misquote it slightly, but the line is something like, um, a buzz, um, a, a tinkle of uh, Mozart at his has at his chest. Um, so he turns away from her and says hello. Mm. And you realise, oh, that was his ringtone. He just yeah. picked up his phone. But it's such a much more elegant, and, it doesn't, and it's not particularly showy. Uh, it's just a, such a, a really elegant way of saying his mobile phone ran. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's so much to learn, so much to do. So we haven't talked about theatre at all this time. No, we haven't, no. And that's kind of nice, because it makes a nice change. We're always yeah. talking about theatre things. We are in the midst of reading the short stories that we had through for Sanctuary. Yes, yeah, so what's Sanctuary? Casting short story night. Um that's uh yeah it's a short story night where the uh selected stories will be read live on stage that'll be happening in june yeah. and we're in the middle of reading all our entries for that and they are fabulous and it's it's yeah. going to be amazing so, to announce them yeah so if you're waiting impatiently for that that's on on its way yeah we'll get the winners will be announced at the middle to the end of may probably the end of may uh, possibly, yeah. yeah, middle to the end of May. Um, but yeah, there's uh, and we will probably 
spend the next couple of weeks chatting to people on uh, in Brighton about their fringe shows. We yeah. might see if we can catch people flyering and yeah and because I, I really enjoyed those chats last year that we had on the uh new road yeah the new road that was great yeah so we might do a bit of that we might be seeing quite a lot of shows this year as yeah. well we're hoping to yeah so there's um we're about to write up our list uh about shows that we uh want to see we're not going to give a shout out to any of those now no. um partially well mostly because we absolutely will miss out about 17 to 40 shows that we really desperately want to give a shout-out to, yeah. and we just happen not to remember at that moment. Yes. And indeed, if we did take the time to prep that and give a shout-out to every single show that we want to see, which I should stress wouldn't be just our friends. There's, there's some really exciting shows that I have no idea who yeah. the companies are, yeah. but that what, what they're pitching is beautiful. Um, but if we were going to do that... That would be a four-hour yeah. podcast of just dully listing yeah. show we names. We must go see that. Yeah. True, must go. But we will chat about what we've seen, and we'll we'll Definitely, get yeah. we'll try and chat about. Uh, we'll try and chat to people as well. Um, over the course of this month, and we'll continue to uh chat about cast iron and the business of making art. We yeah. we we'll probably talk about how to put on shows as well at some point. Yeah. Um. And towards the towards the end, uh, start of summer, we uh, will do a couple of location reports from the Reading Fringe. Yeah, yeah, that'd be lovely. Yeah, yeah we'll pop to the Reading Fringe and. Because I'm involved with Red Fringe, so that'll be lovely to go up and, and see all the work that's going on yeah. there. So that'll be great. The Fringe um, brochure uh, launched this week for the Red Fringe. Yes, it's very exciting. I'm very, very, very excited about it. There's so much going on. Um, but yeah, again, I don't want to list because I no. know I'm going to forget amazingly important things. And yeah, if, if you can get to the Reading fringe website to take a look do that'll be running from the 19th of july to the 28th of july um but yeah before then we'll be back with lots of lots of podcasts about writing making art um and just chatting about what it is that we do at cast iron theater that sounded like a 1990s sign off of a radio show and next on Radio Cast Iron, we are going to be listening to a selection of music from local band, the Kidderminsters. <laughs> um, the Kidderminsters are a four-person band. Mm-hmm. Um, their unique skill is that before every gig in this four-person band, nobody actually knows who those four people are going to be. They are selected at random from the audience and are invited to play uh, with absolutely no reference or deference to their actual skill for that particular instrument. Do you know, you say that as a joke and I'm immediately going, I could, I could produce that, that work. Improv, mm. musical improv. Love okay. it. So do follow us. Yes. Download the podcast. Have a listen to our previous episodes. Um, rate Review, subscribe, tell your friends. It's how people find the podcast. If you tell your friends, tell three friends to listen to it. Just three. You know, share the episodes on on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. 
you know. That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then just tell three people, I'm listening to the Cast Iron Theatre podcast at the yeah. moment. It's great. They're going through a reflective phase at the moment where they chat about writing. It's lovely. Yeah. Have a fantastic Brighton Fringe. We'll be chatting to you and any random people that we see in the road with flyers throughout May. Bye. Bye. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. Presented by Andrew Allen. And edited by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Everett Armand. Find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and our website, castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening.